evening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being a part of the show. Welcome, Outcast. How's it going, weirdo? I am the king of weirdos. Welcome to my strange little kingdom of weirdness. For the last couple nights, I've been talking about sterilization and my own personal belief that the main objective of the injection is a sterilization program more so than a culling. Last night I played the clip from Utopia, which illustrates exactly what I think is going on. The idea is to just make everyone sterile. And you can see that happening as we recap the whole Roe v. Wade coming to the surface. The idea of the women protesting probably have gotten the jab and probably are sterile. Therefore, there's no need to protest Roe v. Wade, and there certainly is a need for Planned Parenthood. No one's getting pregnant. You don't need to murder babies. And there are many incidental events occurring that point to the fact that we are about to see a precipitous drop in the birth rate, not only in the United States, but across the world. And many articles are coming out alluding to that. For example, COVID cut 2020 U.S. wedding numbers to lowest since 1963. The COVID pandemic took a toll on weddings in the U.S. with only some 1.6 million marriages occurring in 2020. That is the lowest number since 1963. With many couples forced to postpone their nuptials, the number of unions in 2020 fell nearly 17% from the previous year when some 2 million took place. Even though 2.5 million ceremonies are expected, that probably is going to curve in the other direction, given the fact that you can now not find baby formula anywhere and women are not getting pregnant. What's the incentive to get married and have children? Another case in point, fur baby boom. Seven in 10 Gen X adults would rather have pets than kids. This all adds up to a precipitous drop in the birth rate. From Tulsa, Oklahoma, Gen X may end up bringing on what they call a fur baby boom, since most of them don't want to have any kids. A new poll reveals that seven in 10 young adults in Generation Z would rather adopt a pet than have their own children. Gen Z adults aren't the only ones choosing pets over people. Millennials are as well. In a survey of 1,000 pet owners commissioned by Consumer Affairs, researchers found that 57% of millennials love their pet more than their own sibling. Half of them said the same thing about their mother, and 30% choose a pet over their significant other. There's a great line in the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas. He said, quote, white people, they hate people, but they love animals. It's so true. Most people, especially white people, seem to love their animals unequivocally, and yet people, eh, not so much. 
Overall, 81% of millennial pet owners say they love their pet more than at least one family member. <laughs> uh, more than baby boomers, 77%, or Gen X responded, 76%. Interestingly, cat owners were slightly more likely to choose their pet over a relative than dog owners. Although more millennials say they'd rather be people parents than Gen Xers, 58% they'd, 58% said they'd rather own a, a furry friend than become a, a parent. Since I'm in the fourth quarter of my life, I can tell you that I truly enjoy owning a furry friend who appears to be semi-sleeping. I wonder if, uh, you think Cousin Brucey could wake the me up? <laughs> it's a stormy! It's a stormy! It's a stormy! It's a stormy! It's a weekend! <laughs> you do WCBS in New York! She's very polite. She stops when I stop. I like that. She's not judgmental. All she wants is food, water, pets, a walk. That's it. Now she's back laying down. Why are babies in Scotland suddenly dying at a rate of 300% higher than normal? From Natural News, Ethan Hoff. Newborn babies in Scotland are dying at three times the normal rate, and authorities don't know why. Uh, uh, George is my friend. I don't know why the babies in Scotland are dying at three times the normal rate. I don't know. Could it be, uh, excuse me. Excuse me. This show is stupid. Duh. <laughs> Last September was the first wave which saw 21 neonatal deaths reported. The neonatal mortality rate was 5.1 per thousand. Public Health Scotland did admit the latest death spike is not the result of mere chance. It has not provided even a suspected case or rather cause and insist that the September spike remains a mystery. Hmm. A mystery. Of course, nobody wants to call out the elephant in the room, the injections. How many of the dead baby's mothers took the jab in obedience to the government? Why is this data not being investigated? It would seem prudent to take that into consideration, especially since... Two death spikes occurred at a time when the COVID injections were given the green light. Quote, this is a mystery to idiots, someone wrote in the Summit News. <laughs> the so-called experts and doctors or whatever they call themselves are either really stupid or just lying as they're ordered to do. We know it's from the death jabs. They're doing exactly as planned. Another responded that these so-called doctors and experts are more like shamans, witch doctors. At best, they're nothing more than quacks. Quote, sounds like these vax moms are transferring the spike proteins to their children. Well, that's just a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Another pointed out this could be vaccine-induced AIDS finally starting to take its toll on the little ones. 
It's more evidence. It is a cult. It is a cult. I found this article to be hilarious. Trump Russia advisor Fiona Hill recalls dinner with bizarre smelling Poopin. A former U.S. National Security Council official has described an odd dinner encounter with Russian President Vladimir Putin, who smelled, quote, almost like he stepped out of some special preparatory bath. Fiona Hell, who served as an advisor on Russia under then-President Trump, dished on the strongman during a recent sit-down with the BBC Sounds Desert Island Disc. She said, quote, Now this sounds really bizarre, but I could smell that he was freshly laundered. He wasn't wearing cologne, but it was almost as if he had stepped out of some special preparatory bath or something. He was just all in command of himself projecting this image, and I thought, wow. Look at this. I took in the suits, one of the finely tailored suits, the way the, the little veins pulse on the left-hand side of his face. and I noticed right away, like the rest of us, he really could have done with glasses because he had these giant cards, cards telling him who he was and what he should say. I noticed he didn't eat or drink anything. So she's saying he had an odor. <laughs> Vladimir Putin, I have good reason why I smell during this occasion with this uh, capitalist pig, uh, Fiona Hill. Just prior to meeting and having dinner with Fiona Hill, I was wrestling moose and squirrel. And as we know, moose has terrible body odor. Hey, Rock, did you hear Vladimir Putin wrestled me a while back? That's right, Moose. I wrestle you and you smell damp. You smell like damp rug. Damp shag rug. Go take bath, Moose. Now, why don't you go take a uh, take a hike? Why don't you go invade another country? Uh, <laughs> can't get me. Can't touch me. Our good friend, Yuval Noah Harari. We've chatted about this young man. If you don't know who I'm talking about, Noah Harari, he is the right-hand man of Klaus Schwab. He is the mind behind the great fourth industrial revolution. He is considered to be a brilliant futurist by Klaus Schwab. And if you listen to him, you get a glimpse into how the globalists think, or as I would say, the Luciferian elite think. I've got a transcript of quotes strung together. These are the words of Yuval Noah Harari, again, the right-hand man of Klaus Schwab. So what he believes, Anal believes. Here's what he said, quote, I think the biggest question in maybe economics and politics of the coming decades will be, what do we do with all these useless people? The problem is more boredom. And how do you do that with them? 
And how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they're basically meaningless, worthless? My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games as a solution for most. It's already happening. Under different titles, different headings, you see more and more people spending more and more time or solving their inner problems with drugs and computer games, both legal drugs and illegal drugs. You look at Japan today. Japan is maybe 20 years ahead of the world in everything. And you see all these new social phenomenon of people having relationships with virtual, virtual spouses. You have people who never leave the house and just live through computers. I think once you're superfluous, you don't have any power. Again, we are used to the age of the masses of the 19th and 20th century. We saw all these successful massive uprising, revolutions, revolts. So we got used to thinking about the masses as powerful. But this is basically a 19th century and 20th century phenomenon. I don't think that the masses, even if they are somehow organizing themselves, stand much of a chance. We are not in Russia, 1917 or in the 19th century of Europe. What we're talking about now is like a second industrial revolution, but this time the product will not be textiles or machines or vehicles or even weapons. The product this time will be humans themselves. We are basically learning to produce bodies and minds. Bodies and minds are going to visit, I think, two main products of the next wave of all these changes. That is, is optional. Again, if you think about it from a viewpoint of the poor, it looks terrible. Because throughout history, death was the great equalizer. The big consolidation of the poor throughout history was that, okay, so these rich people, they have it good, but they're going to die just like me. But think about the world, say, in 50 years, 100 years, where the poor people continue to die, but the rich people... In addition to all the other things they get, they also get an exemption from death. Once you really solve a problem like direct brain-computer interface, where brains and computers can interact directly, for example, to take just one example, that is the end of history, that's the end of biology as we know it. Nobody has a clue what will happen once you solve this. If life can basically break out of the organic realm, into the vastness of the inorganic realm, you can't even begin to imagine what the consequences will be because your imagination at present is organic. So, if there is a point of singularity, as it's often referred to by definition, we have no way of even starting to imagine what's happening beyond that. Looking before the point of singularity just as a trend. It's a gathering pace. It is a new attitude. I think it is to treat old age and death as a technical problem. No different, in essence, than any other disease. It's like cancer, Alzheimer's, tuberculosis. Maybe we don't know all the mechanisms and all the remedies, but in principle, people always die for one reason and one reason only. And these are technical reasons, not metaphysical reasons. People today actually manage to live, and many people as isolated, alienated individuals. In most advanced societies, many people live as alienated individuals with no community to speak about, with a very small family. 
It's no longer the big extended family. It's now a very small family, maybe just a spouse, one or two children. They might even live in a different city, a different country. And you see them maybe once every few months, and that's it. After millions of years of evolution, suddenly within 200 years, the family and the intimate community break. They collapse. Most of the roles filled by the family and the intimate community for thousands and tens of thousands of years are transferred very quickly to new networks provided by the state and the market. You don't need children. You can have a pension fund. You don't need somebody to take care of you. You don't need neighbors or sisters or brothers to take care of you when you're sick. The state takes care of you. The state provides you with police, with education, with help, with everything, in terms of ideas, in terms of religions. The most interesting place to be today in the world, in religious terms, is Silicon Valley. It is not the Middle East. This is where the new religions are being created now by people like Ray Kurzweil, and this these are the religions that will take over the world. Those are the words of Yuval Noah Harari, the right-hand man of Klaus Anal Schwab. That's their goal, to upload the mind, the emotions, the will, the soul into a machine, transfer it to an avatar, bypass the wages of death, and become an eternal being. Individuals like Harari and Anal Schwab view this as a biological problem. They don't take into account the wages of sin and that man is a fallen creature. They believe all of that to be fiction. At least they do when they're awake. If you want to understand the end game, I just gave it to you. These people want eternal life apart from God. And they're going to attempt to get it through transhumanism, upgrading a human being, transferring the mind into a machine. That's what Kurzweil, Anil Schwab, Kissinger, Elon Musk are all about. If you get a chance, check out the book. It's MorningstarsTale.com, MorningstarsTale.com. There's a link for Amazon. If you like my show, buy the book. If you already bought the book, buy another one. Give it to someone you don't like. MorningstarsTale.com, MorningstarsTale.com. The Perfect Storm. For the past 14 years, it's been my privilege to host the National Intel Report on RBN, to offer a platform to interview exceptional guests, to provoke critical thought, and examine evidence, whether real, fake, or somewhere in between, and allow our audience to call in and participate with your input and questions in order to help us all reach an educated decision and arrive at our own truth. Our world has changed. It's now been turned on its head. Real is now considered fake and mainstream fake is now pushed as real, rather, rather than, than any, any clear, clear thinking, thinking consensus, consensus, or, or rationale. rationale.
Those few remaining beacons of light, the ones still shining through the mainstream media lies, propaganda, and deception, are being viciously attacked at every level through attempts at censorship, threatening advertisers, jailing hosts, and even killing journalists brave enough to speak the truth to you. We are in a war for our very freedom and existence, and through these despicable acts, freedom haters, collectivists, and communitarians have shown they will stop at nothing to blot out these last few beacons of light. Truth is becoming increasingly more difficult to unmask, just as the term unmasking itself is spoken by those usually anonymous sources. They promote their lies, wishing to mask the truths by ignoring it, vilifying it, or conspiratorializing it into a black hole abyss. Regrettably, RBN has reached the tipping point, and through internal audit and actuarial review, it has now been determined that the only life raft of survival to this network is to go the way of PBS, that being audience-supported. Like a cornered animal, the left with veracity is pulling out all the stops with every effort to effectively blacken our beacon forever. Help us, folks. Help yourselves. Don't let our light stop shining. Our motto has always been, because you can handle the truth. It's time to review your budget, folks. If you want the truth to keep flowing through RBN, go to republicbroadcasting.org and become a regular monthly donor of 30, 40, 50, or 100 or more a month and ensure you keep the truth flowing. Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we have been building our online store. Well, we have been focusing on bringing you the best talk show host in the country. Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we also want our listeners to have products they can use every day and in times of emergency. We have added new products each week to our store. Your support of this network, plus products at the best prices, is a win-win situation. Check out our new store. Go to our website, republicbroadcasting.org, and click on the online store located at the top of our website. Together, we can continue to grow RBN and help our listeners prepare for the future. Go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on our online store or call us. 800-724-2719, extension 3. 800-724-2719, extension 3. She's laying there peacefully. I don't need to disturb her. We went for a nice walk. Everything's going really well with the dog. She's pooping really well. My cable provider put in a new line from the um, telephone wire. Now I've got uh, really good internet. She's pooping good. Everything's. My life is so simple. I love it. I really do. I, I'm so glad no one else is in it. <laughs> you know, I can't be around positive people for one reason. Well, actually, there's many. One is they don't have a sense of humor. It is impossible to have a sense of humor if you're perpetually 
positive. And it's not real. Jesus was described as a man of sorrows. Even the one who created this place had his moments. Of course, if you're Joel Osteen, you, you don't have any moments on camera. You save those for you when you get Can you imagine what he's like at home? I'd like to see him just get pissed off once. Love to see a video of that. Speaking of religious fakes, Pope Francis shares secret recipe for a bad knee. You, got, you ready for this one? He has a bad knee. The recipe, a shot of tequila from Rome. Doctors have prescribed a wheelchair, cane, and physical therapy to help heal Pope Francis's bad, his bad knee. He has other ideas. According to a viral video of the Pope at the end of a recent audience, Francis quipped that what he really needs for his pain is a shot of tequila. Francis was riding in the Pope-mobile in St. Peter's Square when he stopped near a group of uh, Mexican seminarians from the Legion of Christ who asked him in his native Spanish how his knee was doing. After he replied it was capricious, they told Francis that they admired his ability to smile despite the pain and that he was an example for future priests like themselves. Francis said, That's a nice. You know what I need for my knee? Some tequila. Da, 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 da. Tequila. That's a nice. I like it. I like it a tequila. Sometimes late at night, when I'm all alone in the Bastille or in the rectory, I got a rectory in the back of the thing. I like it down a couple shots of the tequila. I take a little lime, I put it on my wrist, take a little bit of salt. Oh, that's a nice, I got a nice buzz. And then after I get a nice buzz of tequila, I get myself a nice blunt. I love it a blunt. That's a nice. And then after I have a couple of hits of the blunt, I'm on the phone. Hello, Luigi's a pizza. I like a two larger pepperonis. Yeah, it's at the Pope. Yeah, just leave it at the front door. That's a nice. Also, one a calzone and a large bag of Doritos and a 64-ounce Coke. No, not the Coke, but you can send another joint. That's a nice. Oh, yeah, baby. By the way, the uh, economy is taking a nice big dump. I've been watching clips of The Big Short, which is one of my favorite movies. Remember that one from 2011? 2011? Uh, big short investor Michael Burry warned stocks will crash and rallies will not last. He sent out a series of tweets. I tend to agree with him. The uh, hedge fund manager of the big short fame rang the alarm on the greatest speculative bubble of all time in all things last summer. He warned that retail investors piling into MAME stocks and cryptocurrencies they were careening towards the mother of all crashes. And it looks like it's beginning to occur. The stock market today was down 1,100 points. A few years ago, that would have been a disaster. But considering how much inflation has fictionally increased the value of the stock market, here's what he wrote. Paradigm shifts, speculative peaks, S&P 500 bottomed 13% lower than 2002's bottom. In 2009, 
17% lower than 1998's LTCM crisis. Okay, here over my head, young fellow. It'll be fascinating to watch what happens tomorrow. Usually what happens is that when the market takes a dump like today, drops 1,100 points, uh, that's usually when an organization called the, oh, hang on, i got to blow my nose, <gasps> punch protection team would get involved and, you know, artificially prop it up. So probably tomorrow will be a telltale sign of where this market's going in the short term. If the, uh, excuse me, i got to sneeze, punch protection team does get involved and artificially inflates, you'll have an day. If they don't, I expect another tank job. The perfect storm. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website by going to republicbroadcasting.org. Extendivite testimonials on Amazon are very informative. Here's just a few. Amazon customer, five stars. Honestly, this stuff works. Nick, easy to take capsules. For those who can't handle the liquid drops, easy-to-take Extendivite capsules do the same job. Karoka Fam. Works great. Like Extendivite very much. Seems to work as advertised. Thanks. Arlene. Five stars. Love this product, Extendivite. Terry W. Five stars. Can't say enough. Great product. Freya. Five stars. I just ordered another. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E.com. Or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with Extendivite. Homeowners, if your lender has gone out of business or sold your transaction to another lender or servicer, you may be the victim of a wrongful foreclosure resulting in the loss of your home. If you've already lost your home, are in foreclosure, or even in good standing, you can challenge the mortgage transaction's illegal issue, and your property can be restored to you, and your foreclosure can be stopped or reversed, and the mortgage transaction declared unenforceable. State laws, U.S. title codes, the Uniform Commercial Codes, and U.S. Supreme Court rulings have upheld that defective mortgage documentations can reverse or stop foreclosures and enforce property title claims in favor of the homeowner. We are having successes in stopping the process of foreclosure, the enforcement of the foreclosure judgments, the sale of property, and evictions after the sale. We are not attorneys, and we don't give legal advice. We are a professional team of legal researchers, providing forensic mortgage audits and expert witnesses. We have the knowledge to produce the evidence and enforce laws regarding your legal issues. We've been in business for 12 years without a complaint. Consultations are free, and we provide a free title search to confirm if your mortgage has legal defects. Please call 855-253-3748. 855-2-KEEP-IT-TODAY. Are you sick of censorship? TLB Talk is the cure. TLB stands for truth, liberty, and balance. We are the newest and most unique social media platform to hit the internet. We were built out of necessity because Big Tech, Big Pharma, and Big Brother are out of control. The only thing bigger than them is when we the people are united. With that vision, TLB Talk was born. 
Our battlefield is in cyberspace. The battle we're in can be won by clicks of buttons and voting with your wallet. TLB Talk has no hidden agendas, no corporate funding, and we do not sell, trade, or give away any of your information. Our platform runs off of generous donations of members and merchandise profits. So please, check out our site. It's the best around. And be sure to stop by our store. It's loaded with items that'll have you feeling a sense of member pride and victory. Come unite with us today at TLBTalk.com and join the social media revolution. listen to on occasion is uh, Eric Dubay. He's a flat earther. Some interesting takes on things. And one of those is hundreds of pyramids are still standing all over the world from India to Peru. Cultures separated by the Atlantic who supposedly never discovered each other's existence built these giant triangular structures, aligned them to cardinal directions, it coded them with sacred geometry and mathematics, and used them as a burial tomb. What's it all about, Alfie? Let's give it a listen. This is Eric Dubay and the Great Pyramid Mystery. Today, there are hundreds of pyramids still standing all over the world, from India to Peru. Oh. Cultures separated by the Atlantic, who supposedly never discovered each other's existence 
built these giant triangular structures, aligned them to cardinal directions, encoded within them sacred geometry and mathematics, and used them as a sepulcher. Acharya S. wrote, As Kiel says in Disneyland of the Gods, we know that pyramid building was once a universal practice throughout the world. Over 6,000 years ago, unknown peoples were assembling great pyramids in Mexico. Gigantic man-made mounds were constructed in China, Great Britain, North America, and on remote Pacific islands while the Egyptians were still living in mud huts along the Nile. Oh, the During Egyptians. World War II, pilots War flying II. the hump reported seeing one of the beginning. He read it over. standing silently oh. in isolated Himalaya valleys. Of the ubiquitousness and similarity hey, of pyramids, David Patrick states, Mayan pyramids are Good found I. from Central America to as far away as the Indonesian island of Java. The pyramid of Sukha, on the slopes of Mount Lawu, near Surakarta, in central Java, is an amazing temple with stone stele and a steppe pyramid that would match any in the jungles of Central America. The pyramid is in fact virtually identical to the pyramids found at the ancient Mayan site at Waxactun near Tikal. In speaking of the global civilization, Kiel elucidates the weaknesses of the current archaeological paradigm. All these things seem to be interrelated, as if they were once part of some great civilization, a common culture that spread throughout the world and then died. We have a reasonably complete history of the past 2,000 years and a half-baked archaeological reconstruction of the past 5,000 years. But there are so many gaps in our knowledge that most of the popular archaeological theories really have very little merit. Indeed, we can't even be sure that the Egyptians built the Great Pyramid. In fact, the Great Pyramid is admittedly much more ancient than the Egyptians of history. As Hotema relates, when the most ancient Egyptians first saw the mysterious Sphinx and the Great Pyramid of Giza, only their tops projected above the wind-blown sand of the desert. They knew no more about the purpose of these structures, their builders, or when they were built, than we do. The Great Pyramids at Giza, even by today's standards, are absolute miracles in architecture, masonry, and construction, mathematics, and astronomy. The dimensions of the pyramids are extremely accurate, and the site was leveled to within a fraction of an inch over the entire base. This is comparable to the accuracy possible with modern construction and surveying methods and laser leveling. Alan Alford wrote, Beneath the now-removed outer layer, the pyramid's construction consists of approximately 2,500,000 dressed stones mostly yellow limestone, but with harder granite for certain interior features. The total mass of the Great Pyramid is estimated at around 90 million cubic feet, which would weigh between 6 and 7 million tons. To put this into proper perspective, the highest cathedral nave in Europe would fit three times into its height, and its mass exceeds that of all the cathedrals, churches, and chapels built in England since the beginning of Christianity. The Great Pyramid is often cited as the largest building on Earth, with twice the volume and 30 times the mass of New York's famous Empire State Building. The pyramid rests on an artificially leveled platform 
which is less than 22 inches thick, yet is still almost perfectly level, with errors of less than an inch across its entire area, despite supporting such an enormous weight for thousands of years. The base of the pyramid is set out perfectly square, no mean feat of engineering in itself. Up until the last millennium, the pyramids were covered completely with smooth, polished limestone casing blocks. In other words, the pyramids were not an irregular-looking series of steps with a missing capstone like they are now. They were covered with 115,000 ten-ton casing sheets of polished limestone, fitted so perfectly that a razor's edge couldn't get between the casings, less than one-fiftieth of an inch. The Egyptians wrote how it reflected the sun like a mirror on all sides. Today, there are still a few polished casings left over at the base of one side. Alan Alford wrote, Our first example of 20th century engineering in the Giza pyramids is the six-sided limestone casing blocks, which were polished and precision carved to fit perfectly with each other and the core stones, with joints measuring less than one-fiftieth of an inch. As if this was not incredible enough, all of these stones were found to be joined together with an extremely fine but strong cement, which had been applied evenly on semi-vertical faces across a surface expanse covering 21 acres on the Great Pyramid alone. The second example is the internal passages of the Great Pyramid. These passages have been measured countless times and found to be perfectly straight, with a deviation, in the case of the descending passage, of less than one-fiftieth of an inch along its masonry part. Over a length of 150 feet, that is incredible. If one includes the further 200 feet of passage bored through the solid rock, the error is less than one-quarter of an inch. Now this is engineering of the highest precision, comparable with 20th century technology, but supposedly achieved 4,500 years ago. Our third example is the machining of granite within the pyramids. One of the first archaeologists to carry out a thorough survey of the pyramid was Petri, who was particularly struck by the granite coffer in the king's chamber. The precision with which the coffer had been carved out of a single block of extremely hard granite struck him as quite remarkable. Petri estimated that diamond-tipped drills would need to have been applied with a pressure of two tons in order to hollow out the granite box. It was not a serious suggestion as to the method actually used, but simply his way of expressing the impossibility of creating that artifact using 19th century technology. It is still a difficult challenge even with 20th century technology, and yet we are supposed to believe that Khufu achieved this at a time when the Egyptians possessed only the most basic copper hand tools. Under the pyramids are large tunnels, hundreds of meters deep, drilled into limestone bedrock with almost perfect 90-degree angles. This kind of drilling technology has only existed, in our current paradigm, for under a century. So how were they drilling, chiseling, and lifting all these megalithic structures. In a famous meeting with a panel of Egyptologists, author of Giza Power Plant, Christopher Dunn, brought a slab of granite, a hammer, and a copper chisel, and asked for a demonstration of how Egyptians were supposed to have chiseled out 
thousand-ton granite obelisks using simple hand tools. After a few whacks at it, the copper chisel had a deep indent, and not a chip of granite was displaced. Alan Alford wrote, Chris Dunn found that many artifacts bore the same marks as conventional 20th century machining methods, sawing, lathe, and milling practices. He was particularly interested, however, in the evidence of a modern processing technique known as trepanning. This process is used to excavate a hollow in a block of hard stone by first drilling and then breaking out the remaining core. Petri had studied both the hollows and the cores and been astonished to find spiral grooves on the core which indicated a drill feed rate of 0.1 inches per revolution of the drill. This initially seemed to be impossible. In 1983, Dunn had ascertained that industrial diamond drills could cut granite with a drill rotation speed of 900 revolutions per minute and a feed rate of 0.0002 inches per revolution. What these technicalities actually mean is that the ancient Egyptians were cutting their granite with a feed rate 500 times greater than 1983 technology. W.M. Petri wrote, On the granite core, the spiral of the cut sinks one inch in the circumference of six inches, a rate of plowing out which is astonishing. These rapid spiral grooves cannot be ascribed to anything but the descent of the drill into the granite under enormous pressure. Graham Hancock wrote, Wasn't it peculiar that at the supposed dawn of human civilization more than 4,500 years ago, the ancient Egyptians had acquired what sounded like industrial-age drills packing a ton or more of punch and capable of slicking through hard stones like hot knives through butter. W. M. Petri wrote, In the first and second pyramids in Giza, there are granite portcullises in the lower passages which still baffle experts today. Firstly, their complex designs suggest a use much more advanced than deterring robbers the Egyptologist explanation. It would take about 50 men to lift the portcullis slabs into place, yet the narrow corridors they are positioned into could have only been occupied by a few men at a time. The pyramids also encode high mathematics supposedly unknown to the simple ancient Egyptians. To begin with, the pyramids are located precisely on the 30th degree latitude and aligned to within three arc minutes of true north. These are beyond coincidence, so it can be assumed that they could very accurately measure both latitude and longitude. The ratio of the Great Pyramid's height to its base perimeter is exactly pi, 3.14. The King's Chamber and other rooms are perfect golden rectangles, expressing the mystical number of phi, 1.618. The ratio between successive numbers in the Fibonacci sequence increasingly approach phi, as you go on from 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34. The resulting graph is known as the fractal golden spiral and looks like a conch shell. Establishment Egyptologists say these mathematical considerations are all coincidence, maintaining that ancient Egyptians didn't possess these concepts. But the reality is, the ancient Egyptians did possess higher math, and they purposely encoded it into their construction. Graham Hancock wrote, 
some routine mathematical games were built into the dimensions of the sarcophagus. For example, it had an internal volume of 1,166.4 liters, and an external volume of exactly twice that, 2,332.8 liters. Such a precise coincidence could not have been arrived at accidentally. The walls of the coffer had been cut to machine-age tolerances by craftsmen of enormous skill and experience. In the king's chamber, the floor diagonal is precisely twice the room's height. W. M. Petri says they managed to place the king's chamber perfectly where the vertical section of the pyramid was halved, where the area of the horizontal section was half that of the base, where the diagonal from corner to corner was equal to the length of the base, and where the width of the face. Was equal to half the diagonal of the base. Do you suppose these mathematics were accidental? Egyptologists say that the Giza pyramids were built for three pharaohs over the course of a hundred years. There are over 2.5 million stones. So if you build 24 hours a day for a hundred years, that means fitting one average 3.5-ton stone into place every 8.5 minutes. Using current technology, multiple cranes and work crews, we still couldn't make that kind of time, nor could we match the craftsmanship. Six million tons of stone, underground tunnels, chambers, corridors, forty-five and ninety-degree shafts, pi and phi ratios, golden rectangles, and other mathematical inclusions, perfect cardinal alignments, right angles, astrological considerations, and flawless masonry. How did ancient man, the whole world over, build these huge, magnificent pyramids? They stacked stones so heavy, many of which cannot be lifted into place with the technology and machinery available today. They quarried these stones from miles away and fitted them together so seamlessly that you can't fit a blade between them. Also in Egypt, tens of thousands of diorite bowls have been found with hieroglyphs engraved. Diorite is one of the hardest stones on earth, harder than iron. Yet intricate inscriptions have been made not through the use of chisels or scraping, but some unknown ancient technology. Whatever it was, was capable of etching lines one one hundred and fiftieth of an inch wide, often in sets of parallel lines separated by a mere one thirtieth of an inch. The same kind of workmanship. Has been found in vases, urns, and other pottery unearthed at the Pyramid of Zoser. Graham Hancock says there was no technology known to have been available to the ancient Egyptians capable of achieving such results, nor, for that matter, would any stone carver today be able to match them, even if he were working with the best tungsten carbide tools. The implication, therefore, is that an unknown or secret technology had been put to use in ancient Egypt. The Sphinx, which Egyptologists say is less than five thousand years old, is actually at least ten thousand years old, based on its weathering alone. Geologists confirm that it has been eroded by massive amounts of water, which hasn't been present in the Sahara for about ten thousand years. Egyptologists claim this weathering is just wind and sand erosion, but geologists like Robert Schock find that hard to swallow. Albert Alford wrote. In October 1991, Dr. Robert Schock, a geologist at Boston University, 
presented detailed evidence that the Sphinx was thousands of years older than the commonly accepted date of 2500 BC. His conclusion was based on the weathering profile of the limestone rock out of which the Sphinx had been carved. Visitors to the Sphinx today can clearly see the vertical weathering profile in the limestone trench surrounding the Sphinx. This erosion, according to the science of geology, could only be the result of prolonged rainfall, in contrast to the dry weather experienced in Egypt since 2500 BC. Based on the climatic evidence, Schock estimated that the Sphinx had to be between 9,000 and 12,000 years old when the climate in Egypt was much wetter. Acharya S. wrote, In fact, although Egypt is often given the honor of being the originator of much human culture, the Egyptians themselves recorded that they were the inheritors of a great civilization that came from elsewhere. Indeed, the Egyptian culture seemingly appeared out of nowhere at a high level of development, as did the Sumero-Mesopotamian and South American. This fact is explainable, if the civilizers were advanced groups coming from elsewhere, from lands that had been destroyed by climatic change, war, or other cataclysm. Tlachihuatl, the man-made mountain in Mexico, is a ziggurat three times the size of the Great Pyramid. The base length of the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan is almost identical in length to the base of the Great Pyramid at Giza. What are those odds? Teotihuacan means the place where men become gods. They claim their pyramids and temples were instruments for transforming the soul after death, exactly as the Egyptians did. This theme is all over the ancient world. Ancient Tibetans, the Egyptians, and Native Americans all had complex systems, multi-stage challenges for recently deceased souls to overcome in the afterlife. Specific stages of the different cultures' afterlife journeys even match up. The Mayans and the Egyptians both believed in stellar rebirth, where kings, pharaohs, and heroes die and are reborn as stars. And Colin Renfrew wrote, Archaeologists all over the world have realized that much of prehistory, as written in the existing textbooks, is inadequate, some of it, quite simply, wrong. It has been suggested that the changes now at work in prehistory herald the shift to a new paradigm, made necessary by the collapse of the first paradigm.
six foot four, weighing in 245 pounds of crime-fighting, political science, analyzing brawn. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Patrick Slattery. So, Mike, get off this anti-cicada agenda. I'm a born-again traditional Christian, and my favorite possessions are right here on my nightstand. That would be the King James Bible and my 357 revolver. I'd rather be ruled by Chinamen than Jews. Cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks, right? Just because you steal an election and terminate the republic doesn't mean you terminate the people in the republic, because we're still here. I'm not taking the vaccine. Thank you, Bill Gates. There was a way forward still on January 6th. What needed to be done is to object to every single state. The COVID-19 virus was the setup. The vaccine could very well be a bioweapon. The Patrick and Jeremy Show, Tuesday at 9 Central and Wednesday at 1 Central. This is RBN, the Republic Broadcasting Network.